we have been in a study of the book of Hebrews, uh, and particularly since February, we have been dealing with this idea of new horizons from Hebrews 7 on. If you have not been with us, let me see if I can catch you up real quick. The writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of Christians who have come to faith in Christ, but they came up out of Judaism, so keeping all the Old Testament laws, all the sacrifices. They are facing a lot of adversity, primarily persecution. On the one hand, the Romans, we think this is written someplace in the neighborhood of about 65, 68 AD. So what's going on in the world, a guy by the name of Nero, maybe you've heard of him, uh, persecuting Christians, the, the Christians in the Colosseum, the lions, the dogs, all that kind of stuff. So not a good time. But beyond that, they are also facing persecution from those who are still under Judaism because in essence they feel like they've, you know, they've left the faith. And so lots of that is going on. So in the process, there's, there's a drift that is taking place. There's some that are thinking, well, maybe we go back under and practice some of Judaism and, and do all this. And so the writer is just writing to encourage them to continue on following Jesus with their whole heart. And his argument throughout the whole book is simply this. Jesus is just so far superior. So far superior in anything and everything that Judaism offers. Uh, chapter 1. Jesus is a far superior revelation of God than even what you have from the Old Testament prophets. Because Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact representation of his nature. Chapter 2. He's better than the angels. Because the angels are just ministers or servants of God. But Jesus is the Son. Chapter 3, he's far greater than Moses. Moses' house here was, was an earthly house. God's is, Jesus is eternal. Chapter 4, it's a better inheritance. So, you know, what the children of Israel got as an inheritance is the land of Israel. What Jesus is promising is something that is eternal. It's forever in the heavens. And as we started this study in chapter 7, Jesus is a far better high priest. He's not a high priest after the Levitical priesthood, which those guys change all the time. No, he's, he's after the order of Melchizedek, and he, he is a high priest forever. And not only that, he's a high priest of a much better covenant, not the conditional covenant of the Mosaic covenant, where, where you had to keep it, nobody could keep it all, it just, they always failed, but he's, he's the high priest of the new covenant, and we'll talk a little bit about that today. Not only is he high priest of a better covenant where our sins, our iniquities will be remembered no more, God will write his law upon our heart, but he serves chapter, uh, chapter 9 in a much better tabernacle, not something here on earth like the temple or the tabernacle it used to be, but literally in heaven where he lives to make intercession for us now that he is raised from the dead. And then last week, not only does he serve as a better high priest of a better covenant and a better tabernacle, but he does it with lots better blood. Not the blood of bulls and goats, which can never take away sins, but with his own blood. He has obtained eternal redemption for us all. And now what you get today, at the heart of what we're, we're at here in chapter 10 
is almost the crescendo. I mean, this is like the high point of the movie. This is where the, you know, this is where the last song, all hail King Jesus. I mean, this is it. This is the moment. And what he does is he pulls three things out now that are so spectacular about the sacrifice of Christ of what we have in Jesus that you just, you just almost stand back in awe. And I thought, what a perfect thing to talk about on this Easter Sunday. So we're in chapter 10. I want to read the first nine verses here together because the first thing he reminds us of is that Jesus' sacrifice is what is acceptable to God. So chapter 10, verse 1, if you'll follow along while I read it out loud, that would be great. For the, for the law, since it was only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have that consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. And after saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings, the sacrifices since you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which, by the way, are offered according to the law, then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. His point here is this. The Mosaic law was just merely a shadow. What's interesting in the Greek is there's actually two words for shadows. One is a very distinct, you know, you can see it really clearly. The other one is kind of a pale shadow. It's a, it's a little fuzzy. Well, that's the word he uses here. The Mosaic law was a pale shadow of what was going to come, of Jesus' redemption. And, and so it was just simply pointing ahead. And that's why he's been talking about how that it could never justify the worshipers. Because it was pointing ahead to something. And you see that in the repetitive nature. That year by year they come. Now, we've made the point as we've been studying this. That the author has in mind not kind of the daily sacrifices. But more the yearly day of atonement sacrifice where the high priest would go in on that day of atonement into the very holy of holies and he would make sacrifice atonement for the sins of the people. And his point is, is that obviously it's not effective because guess what? Next year, he's got to come back and do it again. And the next year, he's got to come back and do it again. And his point is, is that clearly it's not dealing with the sin issue the way we really need it to be dealt with. In fact, we mentioned last week as we were talking about this that the Day of Atonement is called Yom Kippur. 
And, and kippur simply means covered. Not taken away, just covered. And so it comes back. So that raises a question. And the question is, if the mosaic sacrifice was a pale shadow, if it could really never take away sin, and oh, by the way, he's pretty emphatic about that, right? Verse 4, for it is impossible. This is part of the crescendo. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Then why did he give the mosaic law? Why did he give the Mosaic Covenant? So, you may not know this, but I have a unique, special, spiritual gift. Do. Try not to exercise it very often, but there are those moments when I could take something that was perfectly clear in somebody's mind, made all kinds of sense, and I can explain it in such a way that now it makes no sense. (laughs) And so one of the things that I do is after the service is I typically always just kind of stand down here, meet people, and when I've exercised that gift for people, that maybe I can even make them more confused, right? So they come down. And so I've had people come down in the study of Hebrews and say, well, why in the world did God give the Mosaic Law then if it could never take away sin? And the answer is, is because he was pointing ahead to what Jesus would do, what the Messiah would do. There's lots of those things. If you were with us on Friday night, we talked about the Passover lamb. And the Passover lamb was what? Pointing ahead some 14, 1500 years to what Messiah would do. Prophets would come and they would speak of what was coming ahead. Pictures were given of what was coming ahead. Well, that's what the Mosaic Law was, right? It's the picture. Our way into God is not made. There's a veil. We can't go in. But one's going to come that's going to take that away. And that's Jesus. And so where the Old Testament, those sacrifices weren't accepted. In fact, he's now going to quote here from Psalm 40 in verses 5, 6, and 7. God's saying, I don't even delight in these things. But the idea is, is that Jesus was going to come and his sacrifice was going to be fully accepted. And the reason is... He literally, totally, and completely accomplishes the will of the Father. So let's look at this. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired. If you were to go, I I have the New American Standard. That's what I read out of. This is how it reads in my Bible. Sacrifice and meal offerings you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. Then I said, behold, I come. This is speaking ahead of the Messiah. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will. Oh, my God, your laws within my heart. Now, there's a big change, right? So if you read here in Hebrews, it says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Up here, it says, my ears you have opened. Why is there a difference? Well, if you remember, what we're reading today is a direct translation from the Hebrew. What the author of Hebrews is quoting is actually the Greek Septuagint, which was a translation of the Hebrew into the Greek. 
And what the, what the phrase literally means in Hebrews is that he dug out my ears. So you can understand why it says you've opened my ears. The, the, the Greek translation of it takes it a little different way. In fact, I think it foreshadows the incarnation by the fact that he dug out my ears. So you think about how when God made man, he took the dust of the earth and he made man, right? Adam means man of clay, man of red clay. And so he dug out the ears. I think it's looking ahead at the, the incarnation that you dug out my ears. So you made a body for me, which is the translation from the Greek Septuagint, but specifically focusing on the ears in that so that I could hear and now obey the will of God. Because that has been the problem since day one. Has it not? So God makes Adam, he gives him ears. And he says, hey, everything is yours. You can eat of every tree in the garden except one. That's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't, don't eat that one. Does he obey? Does he follow the will of God? No. I would argue with you, when you look at how broken our world is, it's because even though we have ears to hear what God's will for us is, we don't follow it. Can you... Can you imagine how much better life would be today if we just simply followed thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, and thou shalt not commit adultery? We'd live in a lot better place, wouldn't we? What if we took on God's will that you love your neighbor as yourself? But we don't follow. We, we don't do the will of the Lord. And so Adam, who was our representative, right? In, this, in essence, we were all in Adam. He chose not to follow the will of God, but to rebel and to sin. Jesus, the Messiah, is coming as the second Adam. God says, I don't want burnt offerings. What I have prepared as a body that you may literally, fully follow the will of God. And that's exactly what Jesus did. So you think about how Jesus came and now he's tempted. Hey, turn, turn that stone into a piece of bread. No, you won't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Hey, throw yourself down here from the corner of the temple because he gives his angels charge over you. No, you don't tempt the Lord your God. You think of Jesus in the garden sweating great drops of blood because he knows what's coming. He knows he's going to take sin. And what is his prayer? Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. Jesus fully, completely, totally. See, he knew why he came. He had said, hey, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom. That's why he came. And so now he fully completes the will of God and his sacrifice is accepted. You know how we know it's accepted? Because three days later, well, first of all, you know, because when he says it is finished, guess what? God tears the veil from top to bottom in the temple. Secondly, three days later, he raises Jesus up from the dead as a resurrected and living king. We know it to be true. 
The blood and bulls and goats can never take away sin. Jesus' blood, accepted. The second thing he says is this, that the sacrifice is complete. This is verses uh, 10 to 14. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all times, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. His point is this. Not only was Jesus' sacrifice accepted before the Father, but what it did was it completely justified us. So he says, by this will. Now, what will? Was it our will? No. Was it even Jesus' will? No, it was the will of the Father. It ties right back into what he said, verse 8. I have come to do your will. So Jesus, because he fully, completely did the will of the Father, by this will we have been sanctified. We have been made holy. We have been set apart to God. This is our position in who we are in Jesus And one of the really cool things, when you think about we have been sanctified, it doesn't just simply mean we've been forgiven. I mean, that would be good, right? It is good. But you think about it, if all we are, all that happens through the blood of Christ is that we're forgiven, it kind of just gets us back to neutral. No, no, no. By this will, we have been sanctified. We have been made holy. What does he mean? Well, through the blood of Christ, not only are we forgiven, but we're actually given the righteousness of Jesus. We stand in him. Do you remember what Paul said back in Philippians? That I may be found in him, not having a righteousness which is of my own, derived by the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. So in Christ's sacrifice, not only am I forgiven... And my sins are removed, but I'm actually given the righteousness of Christ so that I have access that I can draw near to God. It's complete. You remember what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he made him, speaking of Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the what? Righteousness of God in him. Our justification, we were made righteous, we have been sanctified. And oh, by the way, one last thing, by this will, we have been, past tense. It's not we are being or we will be, but we have been. If you have come to faith in Jesus, you have been sanctified by the blood of Christ. You have been justified. It's a done thing. It is complete. In fact, I love the phrase he uses here. The end of verse 10. The offering of once for all. (laughs) Once for all. Remember how he started this? You could never be justified by year after year, year after year, year after year. Jesus, different, once for all. It's a phrase he's used three times 
in this passage is these passages we've been studying since February. Back in chapter 7, he put it like this. Who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of people, because this he did once for all. It's done. It's complete. When he, he says it again in Hebrews chapter 9. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all. It's done, having obtained eternal redemption. We are justified. It is done. It is complete. And notice verse 14, it is for all time. For by one offering, he is perfected for all time. Those who are sanctified. This means this is our position in Christ. Now, obviously, are, are we all perfect today? Well, you may be, but I'm not so much, right? No, the reality is we're, we're not practically perfect at this point. We will be one day when we get to heaven, right? We'll sin no more. But this isn't talking about that. This is talking about our position in Christ. We have been forgiven. We have been clothed with his righteousness. We have been justified once and for all. This is who we are in Jesus. Couldn't help but think of Ephesians when Paul talks about this position, he says, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together by Christ, by grace you have been saved. He raised us up with him. He seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ. Now, obviously, today, physically, you're not seated in heaven because I'm seeing you right now. Right? And we're still in Goodyear. And it's still going to get hot this summer. Right? So he's not talking to Prackle. He's talking the positional. Because the reality is, if you know Jesus, you are spiritually seated in heavenly places today. It's as good as though you're already there. Because that's who you are in Christ. He took away your sin. He clothed you with his righteousness. You have been justified. And his work is done. It's finished. Did you pick up there in, in verse 12? But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down. What do you do when you're done? You sit down. Right? This afternoon, I'm looking forward to sitting down. But don't miss, don't miss the contrast. Verse 11. Every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for all times, sat down. This is one of those, you know, we talked about how the author of Hebrews is not a real linear thought process. It's, it's more Jewish. It's circular. And he he kind of gives us some hints of where he's going and he ties us some things that where he's been and he just kind of keeps going like this. And this is one of those themes that he opened up way back in chapter one. He says about Jesus, he's the radiance of his glory, the exact representation, upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down. It's done. Where he's going, which I think is the theme of this book in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has what? 
sat down. It's done. There's nothing you can add. And maybe you're here today and you're trying to find God and you're trying to, hey, well, maybe I'll go to church. Maybe I'll turn over a new leaf. That's never going to work. That's the whole reason Jesus came. But I can tell you this. You can know him. You can have a relationship with God. Do what Jesus did because his work is complete and it's available to you if you just simply put your faith in him. And that's why Jesus rose from the dead, so that we would know that he is the truth and that his sacrifice is complete. The third thing, and I got to keep moving here, is the last part of this, and that's the idea that his sacrifice not only is accepted by God, not only is it complete, but it's transformational. It'll change your life. Uh, Verse uh, 15. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant, he's quoting here, by the way, from Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law upon their hearts, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their deeds and their lawless, uh, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. See, his sacrifice inaugurated this new covenant. We talked about this a few weeks ago. This new covenant, Jeremiah 31, the old covenant's done. Did you, did you see that? We kind of skipped over it back in verse 9. He says, behold, I've come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the Mosaic covenant. He was the only one because he was God's son. And so when he fulfilled it perfectly, it was done. It was complete. It was set aside. Now he institutes this new covenant. The new covenant is God will write his law upon our heart. He's going to change us from the inside out. Our sins and our iniquities, he will remember no more. So you think about how Jesus going to the cross, gets his disciples, they're having the Passover meal, but he takes this, this cup of wine and he says this. This cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. He, he establishes it. And this new covenant is what? Well, he's going to forgive our sin. He's going to write his law upon our heart. And so the sacrifice of Jesus, remember one of the things he's been arguing is this. That the Old Testament Mosaic law was weak. It was powerless because it put all these external things on. And you had to be ceremonial clean, but it didn't change And that's why nobody, nobody could keep it because there was no power. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. My covenant, this new covenant I'm staying with, it has power. It's going to change you on the inside. That's why 2 Corinthians says, if a man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, new things have come. You read it in Romans chapter 6 that when we accepted Christ, that we died with him and our old nature was crucified with him on the cross. And now we have been raised in newness of life. There's a change that has taken place on the inside. And he's given us his Holy Spirit 
Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your body is a temple? Do you know that if you come to faith in Christ, you've put your faith in Jesus, you have been sanctified, placed in Christ, do you know that the Holy Spirit, God himself, lives in you today, right now? Do you not know that your temple is the body of the Holy the temple your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have a God? It's there. He changes us from the inside out. And what he brings then is this forgiveness, this cleansing, and this relief from guilt. You know, guilt and shame are interesting emotions. Uh, today, primarily, they're looked at as negative emotions, bad emotions. I would argue that God gave them to us, so there's some redeeming qualities to it. It's like any emotion. If you don't deal with it correctly, it can be bad. For instance, fear. Fear can be a good emotion, right? You're in the house, it's on fire, get out. Good, good. It's a good emotion. For some people who live in fear with anxiety, it's gone beyond where it needs to be, right? And becomes unhealthy. I would argue with you that because God gave us sense of guilt and sense of shame, there's a positive aspect. I think primarily he gave it to us because we would feel that guilt, we would feel that shame, we would realize we're not all that and we need him. Because we can't justify ourselves. We messed up. It, you know, you try to make it right, but we messed up. And so there's guilt and the shame, and so I can't fix it. So I think it causes us to want to turn to him, but the problem is we don't deal with it right. What we try to do is we try to justify ourselves. We try to make it right. We, uh, uh, we will put others down to make us look better. Some people, what they just try to do to get away from it is they just run, right? I'm going to run from God. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, right? they're going to go hide from God. And that's the wrong way to deal with it. The real way to deal with, with guilt and to deal with shame is to realize, man, I, I messed it up and there's nothing I can do to fix it. But you come to Jesus and guess what? He forgives. He removes. He takes it as far as the east is from the west. He brings us to that point that no matter what I do and what I've done, on. I'm clean before the judge of the universe. And it brings that relief. The last thing, and I got I to be done. But did you notice verse 15? Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering. It brings rest to the soul. I don't have to continue to try to fix this or continue to try to run or continue to try to justify because when I understand that Jesus has brought forgiveness, man, there's freedom. Yeah, I messed up, but he, it's gone. It'll never be remembered against me again. I can walk in that freedom. And how we, how we experience this is through the sacrifice of Jesus. It's acceptable to God, the only one. It's complete. It's done. You don't have to add anything to it. And it'll change your life. And if you've not come to put your faith in Jesus, can I just tell you that's where this begins? By realizing that Jesus is the only way, that he's the one who died for you. He's the one who Jesus, God raised from the dead so that we could put our faith in him. And if you'll just do that, 
he will take your sin and your iniquity and remove it as far from you as the east is from the west, never to be remembered again. 